Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and if you need to use table of contents to find it, feel free to do so. As you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Arlington and Loudoun and Prince William and Montgomery County, as well as those of you who aren't able to join us in person and you're online. It's really good to be together around God's Word. And I want to especially welcome you if you're visiting with us. We are really, really glad that you're here. We're in the final week of a series leading up to Christmas called The Sound of Hope, where we're thinking together about the biblical foundations of familiar Christmas songs. So our plan is to do one today and then on Christmas Eve at all of our locations to do another. So we're looking at the biblical foundations for these songs. Then you can go to mclanebible.org slash Christmas and you can download uh, recordings of these songs there. And you can also see at mclanebible.org slash Christmas the times for our locations, our gatherings on Christmas Eve. Our teams are working really hard to make those gatherings really special. And I want to encourage you to not just come to one of them, but to bring somebody with you to them, whether family or friends, co-workers, neighbors, particularly people in your sphere of influence who may not know Jesus. Or maybe even between now and Friday, you come across somebody that you meet at a restaurant or a store or a shop that you can invite to come with you. Like, don't come alone on Christmas Eve. Invite somebody to be with you. This morning, we're looking at one of my favorite Christmas songs, and I don't think I'm alone in this being uh, one of my favorites. So the song is, Oh Holy Night. As many times as I've sung this song, or really what I love is listening to somebody else with an awesome voice sing this song. Uh, and then if you turn it up loud enough, you start to think your voice sounds like their voice. Um, but I've never known the history behind it, which is fascinating, and actually caused the song for a while to be banned in the church. So four people played a major part in this song's history. The first was a guy named Placide Capo. How do you like that French? Uh, yeah, there was a couple of French people like, oh, that was horrible. So uh, French-speaking people. So I really don't know how to say his name, but we're going to go with Placide Capo. So he was a commissioner of wines in a small town in southern France in 1847 who was not involved in the church but was known for his ability to write poetry. And the priest of the church in his town came to him and asked him to write a poem for the Christmas mass. So Capot agreed on a dusty coach ride to the French capital. He opened up the Gospel of Luke, tried to imagine what the birth of Jesus was like on that night in Bethlehem, and he wrote Cantique de Noël by the time he arrived in Paris. Soon after he wrote the poem, he thought, I need to put this to music. So he enlisted the second guy in the song's history, Adolphe Charles Adams, a friend of Capo's who was Jewish. So Adams did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, but he agreed to write music for this hymn about Jesus' birth. Adams finished the arrangement, and three weeks later in Capo's hometown, they sang the song on Christmas Eve. And people loved it. 
Its popularity grew fast until it was discovered that it was basically written and composed by two non-Christians. And the church decided to, shall we say, cancel the song. The church officially said it lacked musical taste. Oh, holy night. And it demonstrated a total absence of the spirit of religion. Years later, though, it found its way into the hands of a third guy on this side of the ocean, an American named John Sullivan Dwight, who was working as an abolitionist in the U.S. in 1855. And Dwight was specifically drawn to the connection between the coming of Christ and freedom from oppression and the slave becoming our brother. So he translated the song into English, published it in his magazine, and it became popular particularly in the North over the coming years, especially during the Civil War. We'll come back to that in a minute. Fast forward from there to 1906, and our fourth man, Reginald Fessenden, a 33-year-old university professor and former chief chemist for Thomas Edison, came across this song, and on Christmas Eve, 1906, Fessenden did something that up until that time, people thought was impossible. Using a new type of generator, Fessenden spoke into a microphone, and for the first time in history, a person's voice was broadcast over the airwaves. Radio operators from newspapers and ships were shocked as their normal coded impulses were all of a sudden interrupted by a person's voice. It almost seemed like a miracle, like an angel speaking through the radio. And do you know what Fessenden said? He said, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Fessenden read the story of Jesus' birth from the book of Luke. As people, wherever a radio was, found themselves rushing to listen to this voice Fessenden finished reading from Luke, then he picked up a violin and he played a song. And Oh Holy Night became the first song ever sent through the air via radio airways. What a historic song on so many different levels. It's fascinating, isn't it? And, and for good reason. When you think about the history during which the song was written, and when it began to spread, one more historical note. Tradition has it that on Christmas Eve, 1871, in the middle of fighting between France and Germany in the Franco-Prussian War, soldiers started singing this song across the ranks, leading to a 24-hour ceasefire between the two armies. Now, what a scene. And, and think about it. Here in the United States, in our country, as slaves and people were fighting against slavery in a civil war, and they were celebrating the birth of Christ, they sang, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Those were potent lyrics to sing in those days. And I would submit these are potent lyrics to sing today. And in light of this song's history, I think it's only appropriate to hone in particularly here, because there, there are biblical foundations everywhere in the lyrics of this song. But I want us to 
specifically see the biblical foundations for a stanza like this, which is what made the song so popular, at least in our country when it was first sung here. I want us to think about how this holy Christmas night is good news, yes, generally for all people, but specifically how this holy night is good news for the poor and the oppressed and the enslaved. To think about how the coming of Christ is specifically good news. And I want to bring it into this gathering right here with all of us in the different places where we are for sisters and brothers in this church who have experienced oppression, either personally or in your families in the past or in the present. Think of the many African-American sisters and brothers in our church who have stories of oppression whether personally or in your parents, great-grandparents and great-grandparents and so on who were enslaved when this song was being sung. I think of Native American sisters and brothers who in your families and tribes have experienced oppression and poverty. I think of a variety of sisters and brothers in our church family who immigrated here because of oppression or poverty in your home countries. And many of you are daily burdened by continuing oppression back home where you still have friends and family living there. I think about conversations I've had with Eliza who oversees our counseling and care ministry. Some of you are quite frankly burdened by oppression in your home even now. So how is the coming of Christ specifically good news for the oppressed or the impoverished? I think about sisters and brothers in our church family who are struggling right now to make ends meet. Some of you literally are without a home as our elders and various church groups are coming alongside you. So how is the coming of Christ really good news for the homeless And not just for us. Ultimately, how does the coming of Christ change the way we all live in a world where we're surrounded by people who are poor or oppressed or even enslaved still today? So let's read the words of this song out loud together across all our locations like we've done in recent weeks. We're going to read and then later sing the first and third stanzas and chorus of O Holy Night. But let's make sure to read it through the lens of the history behind it. It's a carol that took hold in our country amidst slavery and civil war. So with that background, let's read these words. Say them out loud together. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry. That's totally gross. But anyway, I just have no excuse. It just... Anyway, all right, let's read. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. 
fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night divine. Oh, night divine. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. What a song. What claims that this night was set apart. That's what holy means. Set apart from all other nights. That it was divine. That God was doing something unusual on this night because it was the night when Christ was born. A baby who will break chains. A baby who will make slaves brothers. Like will totally change the fabric of society. And in whose name all oppression shall cease. What is the biblical foundation for these claims? Why would somebody who's not even familiar with all the Bible read the story of Jesus coming in the book of Luke and come to these conclusions? Well, you fast forward just two chapters from Luke's announcement of Jesus' birth, and we read about the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Look at how it all starts. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What an awesome scene. Like over these last two weeks, we have referenced prophecies of Jesus coming, specifically in the book of Isaiah, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. 
A couple weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So we saw that. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 9, 6, briefly. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So much there. But notice this mention of the government being on his shoulder. And now, let's keep reading this week in verse 7 what it says about his government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this mention of justice and righteousness to come in Jesus the Messiah is a major theme in the book of Isaiah. And from the very beginning of Isaiah, God is confronting his people because they were claiming to worship him while they were ignoring injustice and oppression around them. Listen to what God tells them in the very beginning, first chapter, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12. God says through Isaiah to his people, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is what he tells them. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Did you hear that language? God just said, I want to make clear what I hate. That was the language he used. My soul hates them. God hates worship, religious motion that is content to ignore justice, that is okay with oppression that doesn't care for the fatherless or the widow. A few chapters later in Isaiah 10, God says again through Isaiah, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they make the fatherless their prey. God's making clear he loves Justice. He loathes oppression, specifically when it comes to the poor and widows, and the fatherless. Other points in Isaiah, we see the sojourner mentioned alongside the poor and the widow and the fatherless. So what I want to show you is that into this world of injustice and oppression, God gives 
two promises in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus would come, that I want to encourage you to write down because they are both so foundational for understanding our lives, for understanding this weary, fallen world that we live in, and specifically understanding the purpose of our lives in this weary, fallen world. So, Two promises God gives all throughout the book of Isaiah. One, God promises that a Savior is coming who will endure injustice, who will suffer oppression, and who will die for sinners. And this is remarkable. This is astounding that God is promising in Isaiah the holy God who created the world He's promising that he's going to come into this world himself. We read it. Emmanuel, God with us, is coming into this world of injustice and oppression and death to save sinners. Watch this with me. So you fast forward to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 through 9, and we read this prophecy about Jesus. Maybe one of the most famous prophecies about Jesus. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So just pause for a minute. This is why we have injustice and oppression and death in this world. Because all of us, every one of us, has turned from God's way to our own way. This is, this is why we have sin, evil, oppression, injustice in the world because we have turned aside from God to ourselves. Yet this verse is talking about a Savior who will come and the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. The payment for our sins will be put on him. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Then listen to the language that follows. So talking about Jesus, the Savior to come, we read, he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that before it shears it's silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people they made his grave with the wicked with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Do you see the promise here? A Savior would come who would endure injustice, who would suffer oppression, and who would die at the hands of sinners. Why? To pay the price for their sin. And this is what makes this holy night set apart from every other night in history because this is the night when the dear Savior was born into a world of sin to pay the price for their sin against him. Oh, especially if you're visiting with us today, I want to share with you the greatest news in all the world. God has created you and me all of us, for relationship with him. 
But like we just read, all of us have turned aside from God to our own ways. That's what sin is, and we are all guilty of sin before a holy God. We're all separated from God by our sin. As we've talked about, this is why we see evil and suffering and oppression like we do around us in the world. And in our sin, we all deserve eternal judgment before God. But God loves you and me so much that he's not left us alone in this state of sin, in a world of injustice and evil and oppression. God has come to us for one purpose, to save us from our sin. Jesus was born to die on a cross so that you and I could live in relationship with God forever. So that anyone in the world can be forgiven of all your sin and restored to relationship with God through faith in Jesus, the Savior who came to endure injustice, suffer oppression, and die for sinners. Ah. So, indeed, a thrill of hope the weary world has reason to rejoice. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Rejoice in this world of sin and suffering and violence and viruses and pain and pandemic and trial and tribulation because a baby has been born who will ultimately save us from all of these things. Indeed, fall on your knees before him, before the Christ. That's what his name means. Christ means the promised one, the one promised for centuries to save us in a world of sin. He has been born. He has come for you and for me. Which then leads to the second promise we see in Isaiah. So not only will this Savior Endure injustice, suffer oppression, and die for sinners. But second promise, a Savior is coming who will end injustice, who will stop oppression, and who will transform the hearts of sinners to follow his lead. Now that's loaded language there. I want to show it to you. Because you keep going in Isaiah You come to one of the last chapters, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and you see another prophecy of this Savior to come. And listen to what God says through Isaiah there, talking about the Savior to come. I'll put this back up on the screen in a minute. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, talking about the Savior to come, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you recognize those words? With a couple of small differences, this mirrors what Jesus read on that day in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Out of all the places in the scroll that Jesus unrolled, At the beginning of his ministry, sitting there in the synagogue, he stands up, unrolls, finds a place that prophesies the one who will proclaim good news to the poor, who has been sent by God to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, which is actually an exact quote from I don't have time to look at it, but I'll just write it here. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's 
favor. And you keep going in Isaiah 61. It's also proclaiming the reality of the Lord's judgment on those who don't trust in this Savior. Jesus reads these words from Isaiah. Then he sits down and with everyone's eyes fixed on him, he looks at them and says, today, right here, this passage has been fulfilled in me. What a statement. Like, like can you imagine somebody coming up, like, like me, coming up on a stage, reading a passage written hundreds of years before about a Savior to come and be like, yours truly. <laughs> like, what a, what a moment. He said, today, this is fulfilled, all this promise, hundreds of years before, it's fulfilled in me, right in front of your eyes and your ears. So what, is it, what does this mean? And we, we've already seen, obviously, there's a spiritual dimension at work here. This good news is certainly for the poor in spirit, which we see all over Jesus' teaching, the humble in heart who choose poverty of spirit over pride in self. I urge you, self-made men and women, successful men and women across Metro Washington, D.C., choose poverty of spirit over pride in yourself. Your eternity hinges on it before a holy God. Throw aside pride in yourself. Choose poverty of spirit. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to those who are captive to sin and Satan, its power and its penalty. He's come to open eyes that are blind to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. He's come to set at liberty to free those who are oppressed by sin and Satan. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to all those who place their faith in him. So there is spiritual meaning, potent spiritual application in all of these words. Every single person in this gathering today, every single person in the world has one primary need. You need to be reconciled to God. And that need can only be met by faith in the Savior who came to die for sinners. And at the same time, that is not all. Not that that's not enough. It's gloriously sufficient for our eternal salvation. But follow this. Jesus did not just come to forgive our sins. Jesus came to transform our lives, to give all of us hope that this weary, fallen world with its poverty and captivity and blindness and oppression will not have the last word. Jesus came to give us hope and to revolutionize the way we live and we love in the face of all of these things in this weary world. Jesus came to die for us and to live in us so that we might do 
all the things God has called his people to do over and over and over again in his word. To care for the poor, to go to the captive, to love the blind, to work for the oppressed. What we read earlier in Isaiah, do you remember? Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jesus came to live in such a way that this kind of life would be evident in you and me. Jesus came to enable, empower us to make this kind of life our life in this world. Which is why we see Jesus doing all of these things throughout all the Gospels, beckoning his disciples to follow his lead. Like, love the unlikely, he tells them and he shows them. Love the Jewish tax collector, the dreaded Samaritan, and the Roman oppressor. Love the blind, the deaf, the mute, the diseased, the demon-possessed, and the poor. Jesus warns them, do not give your life to religious motion while neglecting what matters most, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's exactly what God had said in the Old Testament, and Jesus is reiterating it in the New Testament, which is why the first picture of the early church, what do we see them doing? Acts 2, 44 and 45. All who believed. This is the very beginning, founding of the New Testament church. They were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4, they were selling fields and lands to give to those in need. Because this is what followers of Jesus do. They care for others in need inside the church. They extend that care to those in need outside the church. That's why Paul spends so much of his time in the New Testament collecting offerings for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. It's why James tells the church, if you say you have faith but do nothing for the poor, your faith is fake. You're fooling yourself. If you sing your songs and study the Bible every Sunday, yet you ignore the poor all throughout the week, you are a fraud. True religion that God our Father accepts is not merely coming to church. True religion is looking after taking care of orphans and widows. You realize what this means, Christian brothers and sisters, church family at NBC, true followers of Jesus are not content to debate justice. True followers of Jesus are committed to doing justice, to following Jesus' lead and showing Jesus life and love in a world of poverty, injustice, and oppression. And I praise God for how you're doing it across our church family. Some of you adopting, others fostering, others helping families who are adopting or fostering. Many of you are volunteering at pregnancy centers to provide care for parents with unwanted pregnancies and the children God is forming in their mother's wombs. So many of you serving across our city, sharing literally millions of meals with people in need of food, not just once a year, but week after week after week, all throughout the year. Some of you driving trucks full of resources to people in storm-ravaged parts of our country. Others of you caring for individuals and families with special needs or serving children across our locations. 
Speaking of children, our Kids in Kids Quest throughout November have packed hundreds of kits for homeless men and women and children, the DMV, that will be given out alongside proclamation of the gospel of Jesus here at Christmas. Then this month, they've been collecting winter hats, gloves, scarves, and toys for refugee families in our city. So many of you leveraging your work as individuals, whether in business or politics or education. I think about even police officers that I see who serve as part of our church family and and serve our church family in different ways, so many different ways to promote justice and mercy through the common means of work that God has entrusted to us. Church groups caring for individuals and families in different ways, coming alongside ministries around our city, beyond our city. I think about all that's happened in Afghanistan over recent months and how you have risen up as a church and given to support our brothers and sisters over there and hundreds of you volunteering to serve those who have come here. In addition to similar work in Turkey, Thailand, Crimea, Ethiopia, the Ethiopian ambassador recently honoring Dr. Z and Naomi and so many of you for the work you're doing to come alongside churches and care for orphans there. I praise God for how you are following Jesus' lead in doing justice. It's true religion. And I want to encourage us as a church family to do all the more justice in the days ahead because there is so much work to do. There are more orphans and more widows to care for right around us and all around the world. There are more communities in need across our city. I had a conversation this week with a a man and a woman who have been doing ministry for 30 years in housing projects across New York City. And he was talking to me about the challenges facing men, women, and children in these communities and, and all the opportunities that exist for the church to be a part of the solution. Then he said, I just can't get churches to make commitments to come and stay and live and give and work in these communities long term. And I walked away from that conversation just praying, God, make us a church family that will go and stay and live and give and work long term in communities in need. Here in our city, around the world, I think of brothers and sisters sent out from here. Others we partner with around the world who've gone and are living and staying and working in hard places where the gospel hasn't even gone. If you're listening online overseas, like keep going. Know that we as your church family are with you. We want to send reinforcements to you. We have a whole pipeline of hundreds of people working toward that end. Why? Because we are following a Savior who not only came to die for us, but to live in us. He came to change us, to empower us, to live different from the rest of this world, to love mercy, do justice, correct oppression, care for people in need. And this is a fundamental part of the Christmas message. One of my top, one of my top three favorite books outside the Bible is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you've been around here very long, you've heard me quote from it at different points. As I was reflecting on Luke 4 this week, leading up to Christmas, I went back to Packer's chapter on Jesus' birth. It's an amazing chapter on the incarnation. And at one point, he talks about 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, where, where Paul is encouraging the church to give generously and sacrificially for the sake of people in need. And Specifically, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in divine glory, he became poor. He emptied and gave of himself so that we, by his poverty, 
might become rich. We might be blessed and full. And Packer writes about how if we are followers of Jesus and his life is in us, then we should become poor, empty, give of ourselves so that others might be rich, blessed, and full. That's the whole picture there in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Give for these in need because of the spirit of Christ in you. And so then he goes on to talk about the Christmas spirit. And I'm gonna put his quote up here on the screen just to hopefully help it soak in. He writes, we talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. But it ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. It is to our shame, Packer writes, and disgrace today that so many Christians, the soundest and most orthodox, in other words, who got the beliefs right in our heads, go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite, seeing human needs all around them. But after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, avert their eyes and pass by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, they are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit, Packer writes, does not shine out in the Christmas snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, which I'll caveat Packer for him here, and you see this when you read the whole chapter. He's not saying the goal is to be poor as if we're ascetics. But listen to how he defines this. So good. Spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. NBC family, what will shine out of us, not just here at the end of this year, but throughout the next year, the Christmas spirit, the spirit of Christ, or the Christmas snob? We live in a weary world of poverty and injustice and oppression in so many ways we could not even begin to exhaust today. And we all, individually and as a church, have a choice. Individually and as a church, we can go through worship week in and week out, do the motions, have the Bible studies, say the prayers, sing the songs, and do little to nothing about poverty and injustice and oppression around us. And God has spoken clearly about what he thinks of this. He hates it. Or we can gather for worship week in and week out and sing the songs and study the word and say the prayer. And we can give our lives 
reflecting his life, his love, his spirit amidst poverty, injustice, and oppression around us. And I want to urge you individually and us as a church, let's choose true religion and true faith. Let's have nothing to do with fraudulent faith that fakes worship while ignoring those in need around us and around the world. I would urge you as just one practical application to, in your giving here at the end of the year, like see that we have built all kinds of ministry along these lines into our budget, and we have so much more we can do along these lines that we have in a potential surplus budget, depending on how much we give. And the more we have in surplus, the more we're able to give to work like this. I look across our church family in this part of the world, in this city, with all the grace God has given us, and I know there is no limit to what we can do together if we truly follow the leadership of Jesus who taught us truly to love one another, to love each other as ourselves, to give to each other in need, to love people across this city as ourselves. And not just people who live near us or look like us or think like us. To love the nations as ourselves. Even some who the world might say are our enemies. To love them as ourselves. Like, this is the law of our Savior. Love for people in need. His gospel is peace. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother. That's exactly what Paul says in the Bible to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, a former slave. Paul says, Philemon, do you realize he's not a slave or a bondservant? He's our brother in the Lord. Jesus has made this total relationship transformation. Just think of what would have happened if more professing followers of Jesus in the 1800s, when this song was written, had realized the reason for Jesus coming and had followed Jesus' lead, yes, to proclaim the good news of reconciliation with God and to work on behalf of the enslaved and the oppressed. Frederick Douglass, in probably his most famous speech amidst slavery, quoted from Isaiah chapter 1, what we've read today, and he pleaded specifically with the church to follow Jesus' lead, saying, if Christians and churches alone would stand against slavery, quote, this whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds. But so many Christians didn't. So many Christians professed the gospel and worshiped every Sunday while ignoring the poor, impressed, oppressed, and enslaved right around them. And so many people suffered as a result. With examples like this spread across history, may God help us today to follow Jesus' lead 
in a world where we are surrounded by countless people who are impoverished, enslaved, orphaned, widowed, displaced. I was talking yesterday in a store with a man whose family is from Syria. I just met him, and he was talking about how people have totally forgotten about the refugee crisis there, including his family. As I listened to him, I thought about millions, even billions of those struggling in these ways who are totally unreached. They've not heard the good news of who Jesus is and why he came that we sing about in all these songs. So let's give our lives today to following Jesus' lead and showing Jesus' love in a weary world with confidence that one day in his name, all oppression shall cease. Like our Bible reading right now is in the book of Revelation. A book that reminds us where all of history is headed in the end. To his government fully and finally reigning. To Jesus returning and his justice and his righteousness being made known. And it's this confidence, not only in why he came, but in what's going to happen when he comes back that causes us to live and love sacrificially and generously with hope today. You remember how Martin Luther King's famous speech, How Long Ended? How long will prejudice blind the visions of men, darken their understanding, and drive bright-eyed wisdom from her sacred throne? When will wounded justice be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men? He said in the middle of civil rights battles. He said, I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It will not be long because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Yes, sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. He's the Lord, he has come, and he's coming back. And when he returns, there will be no more poverty, no more injustice, no more oppression, no more sorrow, no more evil, no more sin, no more pain for all who have put their hope in him. He will remove all of these things once and for all, and we will praise his name forever. Forevermore, we will proclaim his power and his glory. And so, I invite you to bow your heads with me all across this room and all the locations online where we're gathered. This is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord. I just want to ask every single person within the sound of my voice, have you put all your faith, all your hope, all your trust in him alone to save you from your sin? and to transform your life? If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, I invite you just right now in your heart to say, today, make this the day where you say, God, my creator, 
I know that I have sinned against you. Today I believe that Jesus came to endure injustice, suffer oppression, and die for my sin. Today I place my faith in him and I ask you to transform my life. Make my life his life. As you pray that, and for all who have, place your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. Can we just pray together before God and say, God, help us to follow Jesus' lead. Help us to do what you have called and commanded your people to do all throughout history. God, we, we are not so foolish today as to think that what others have done who've gone before us, we would never do. We realize that it's, it's possible in us to pretend faith and to go through religious motions and ignore justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's possible for us to think we're worshiping you when we're doing that which you hate. So we pray, may it not be so among us. May it not be so in each of us and may it not be so in all of us together. God, make, make our lives a reflection of the life of Jesus, we pray. By your power in us, Jesus, by your love for us, lead us to do justice and to love mercy and to proclaim your gospel as we portray your love in this weary world in which we live. God, we pray this would be the mark of McLean Bible Church that we as a church family would hold fast to hope in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone for our salvation and with lives that reflect Jesus' love for people in need all around us, for this city, for the nations. God, please, may it be so. We pray that you would lead more of us to foster, to adopt, to care for widows, to help sojourners, refugees. You would lead more of us to work in ways that lead to justice and righteousness and good for others. God, that you would use our lives to care well for the poor among us and around us and far from us. God, may all these things that we see in your word be true based on the coming of Jesus for us. In his name we pray, in the name of the one who will one day end all injustice and oppression. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.